If you were given a do-over in life, what would you do with it? From Well Played, this is Superhumans. 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 Who is a superhuman? Superhumans is what we become when we allow our story to serve as medicine for others. I'm your host, Gotham Galati, better known as Dr. G. As someone who once prescribed pills, I now prescribe stories as a form of medicine. Today's superhuman is Mark Brand. His story takes us on a beautifully raw journey that displays the courage and honesty it takes to battle one's inner demons and overcome a path of self-destruction. As you listen to Mark, think about how you might see yourself in the story he shares. Before we hit play, I have a quick word of caution. The stories we share on Superhumans are very raw and real. They're intended for mature audiences. And although I'm a medical doctor, please do not consider this medical advice. Consult with a healthcare professional should you need medical attention. We also want to let you know that this episode mentions suicidal ideation. If this is something you struggle with, help is available. You can find the National Suicide Prevention Line listed in our show notes. I'll see you on the other side of the story. I was a kind, gentle, and fearless drunk. I feared no repercussion, which bled into my regular life. Uh, and would push those edges as far as I possibly could. And then use my charm and privilege to get out of everything that was trouble. Um, so, not a cool way to live. I was walking down the street at a loss on what I was going to do with my life. And a gentleman stopped me. He was in a three-piece suit outside of a restaurant. And he said, what's your deal? And of course, thuggish me was like, are you crazy stopping me in the street? And he said, do you smoke? And I was like, yes, I did at the time. And he handed me a cigarette and we smoked I sat with him at this bar and within two weeks I was the new bar manager and the path became pretty clear to me now amongst it lots of bumps addiction again fell many times lots of personal issues but my purpose seemed to be being met I was making people happy I was making a crazy amount of money Um, so I had all of that and then I lost it all so I attempted to overdose on pills Um, I woke up the next day to my surprise (laughs) and a bunch of people around that time were like, you are made for bigger things than this, which had been a through line in my life. And I said, I have a little bit of savings left, not much, like I was burning through it quickly. And I found this space in Gastown to open a restaurant. And so there was a, a group of guys, including the dude who stopped me on the street. 
And I said, I think I found a space to open our restaurant. And they were like, oh, really? And so there's an amazing picture of me regaling four dudes with my arms outstretched in this old dump of a restaurant. It's like, we call it the color scheme Tuscan Regret. It was like mauves and oranges and there was weird artwork and it had just been abandoned. But I saw something in it and I had done some research and found out it was the oldest building that still stood up in Vancouver that had escaped the great fires. And it was on this pivotal corner, which was also the original planning center of the map of the city of Vancouver, that it used to be something. And I sold the story across. I was like, we can do this. And so we all like cobbled together what money we had. I think we had a grand total of about 80 grand. Now, anybody who's ever opened a business knows that that's not enough. And I was like, we're going to make it work. So we built it. We painted it. We sanded the floors. We rebuilt the kitchen. We did it all ourselves. And we leaned on our friends who were artists. It was this definition of community. And right outside of our doors was the despair of the downtown east side. So huge area of homelessness and mental illness. And I couldn't stop thinking about it. It's all I could think about. And why I couldn't get them out of my mind is because they were me. I was seeing myself and wanted them to be safe. And that's where everything changed. What happens next is every single part of it made me feel like an imposter. Imposter syndrome has never felt so serious to me. Like it's always been there. I was running all of these businesses. We were 17 million in revenue. I had over 500 employees. We were a leader in the B Corp field. All of these things that were scratch made. No investors up until Sabon. No, nothing. Credit card debt, we built the shit ourselves. So like, first of all, to give that some scope, I have grade 12 education on paper. When I was at Stanford at the D school, because of my work around design thinking at the Think School of Leadership was offered an interview to be a design thinking fellow or a civic innovation fellow at the center of design thinking, led directly by David Kelly from IDEO. And at the D school, I arrived day one with my backpack on and I'm fairly heavily tattooed on my hands, on my neck, etc. That is not one of the five archetypes at Stanford University. There is nobody else on campus, and I can say this definitively, that looks like me. So that was stark. I'm also old. <laughs> I'm not a young scholarship student. Right? So I got to campus and I felt very weird. Uh, we were given a task, a design thinking sprint. Luckily, I was already built for this. I was trained into what this looked like, and I was already teaching it a little bit. And so we were put in a room, and we were like, what are the projects that you're working on? I'm like, I'm working on how to end poverty through traditional and technological means. I believe that we can end it. And they're like, cool. We need you to do a rapid prototype. You have 30 minutes and go. I'm like, what are the... And there was four of us in the room. Pipe cleaners, cardboard, markers, Play-Doh. Typical design lab shit, right? I was like, okay, got it. So I wrote on a piece of cardboard, need help. You know, kindness, appreciator. And I went and sat in the center of Stanford with my sign, looking exactly like this. I didn't mess up my hair or look disheveled or do anything to my face. 
as my prototype. I was like, I wonder if anybody will engage with me. And on the back of the piece of cardboard, I was ticking the people who just went by what I could see. They acknowledged me and then they kept going or the people who just didn't see me. And then the people who stopped, lots of people stopped. People gave me money and I'd already made a social contract with myself that I knew there was homeless people downtown Palo Alto that I would pass pay it forward. And one woman pulled up on her bicycle, looked me dead in my eyes and was like, are you hungry? And I, I promised myself I'd also be honest. So if I was asked, I would actually say what was going on. And I said, I am. And she's like, would you like to share a sandwich? I'm gluten-free. And I was like, I want to eat this fucking sandwich. I was like, yes, I would love that. And she sat down next to me, went into her backpack, opened her sandwich, and sat there quietly and just ate with me. She didn't ask me any questions. She didn't say her name or anything. When she was done, she was like, do you want to sip of my water? And I was like, I'm good. And she got back on her bike and she drove away. And I was like, maybe this place is for me. Maybe there is something for me to do here. And so I went back in and I had to scholastically provide my results and present them. I'm good in the room. I'm good on my feet. And I did. And a couple months later, I received a call that I was going to be a paid adjunct lecturer at Stanford University and a D-School Civic Innovation Fellow. I was like, oh, fuck. Really? Okay. And I'd been very honest. I was like, you guys know that I have high school. They're like, none of that's relevant. They saw me for who I was, but didn't have language for it. Therefore, I didn't have language for it. Therefore, I was like, what is the gimmick that they're running? Do they just want a social impact entrepreneur in it? Are they trying to check out some archetypes? And I was too nervous to ask to feel like then I would put them on the back foot. So all of this imposter syndrome plus nervous energy and all this shit is just in me. And I have to move to Palo Alto, California and leave my fiefdom in the downtown east side that I've spent a decade plus building of ultimate comfort with my people that I spend every day with and just go be a brand new human being. I don't know anybody at all. So I get introduced. My other fellows are there. I can tell how nervous they are. They come from all different backgrounds. And I was like, so I cook. Um, do you guys all want to come to my house, including the faculty and the student fellows? And I'll cook. Uh, and we could share some stories. And maybe we could do that every week. Because I don't have anybody out here. And everybody was, I just watched them melt. They were like, yes, that. And so we started a ritual where I would cook for everybody and we all hung out at my house and we would share our struggles, et cetera. And the first thing that I brought up, and this will get right to the point of this, the two stories was, does anybody else here feel like a fucking imposter? And everybody exhaled and was like, fuck yeah. I'm like, thank God. All right, cool. Why? So the former provost of Bucknell University is doing a climate change thing. The guy's a god. And he's like, because you're cool and you actually touch the streets and you know about real stuff. I've been sitting in an office for 30 years. I was like, oh, word? And then the head of the design thinking lab for the federal government is there. And she's like, I'm a fucking bureaucrat. Like, I know you guys don't trust me or like me already. It's obvious. And I was like, what? And another dude was like, I'm a frontline advocate, but nobody ever takes me fucking seriously. And I was like, and the stories just kept rolling. I was like, this is beautiful. It was too beautiful. Couldn't cope. I couldn't wear it. I was like, I've untapped something here but I still felt like an imposter. No matter if I, I had the conversation outwardly, we're hugging, there's tears. 
Then I went back to Stanford and presented my first theory. Here's my first deck on what I'm proposing about my research. And they fucking shredded me. And I say that word with all sincerity. Like, it wasn't kind. It wasn't helpful. It was abrasive and attacking. How would you know that? Prove that assumption. What does that look like? Like, just to the point that my fellows around me were, like, taken aback. And there was a purpose for it, but it, it wasn't kind. It was completely inappropriate. And so I went home that night and I was like, I'm going to quit. I'm going to quit. So I called my dad. This is a fun part of the story. I called my dad and I was like, hey, uh, yeah, so I just presented and I guess defended, which I wasn't aware I was going to be doing, uh, my theories around um, poverty and homelessness. Great. How'd it go? I was like, uh, I think I'm going to quit. Tell me, walk me through it. So I do. And he takes this deep, deep pause. I'm like, you still there? Yeah. I just don't know how to say this to you. I've never seen you quit anything ever, literally, in my life. Why would you quit this? Did you get bullied by nerds? And I just fucking lost it. I was like, yes. That's exactly what happened to me. You got fucking bullied by nerds. You walk right back in there, put those nerds in place, and get back to work. I'm a grown-ass man. So I did. But didn't go away. And that trauma of already not feeling like I belonged and already feeling like an imposter and already feeling like the institution hated me, I saw it. I saw it directly. So I was like completely unbalanced. So I decided that to make myself feel safe, I would create my own little neighborhood again. So I found the diviest dive bar that still exists in Palo Alto, kicked the door in like Moe's, sat myself at the bar and created a relation with every single hardcore alcoholic in Palo Alto. Played crib every night with them, played bridge, told the same stories, watched the game, ate chicken fingers after 10, 12 hour research days. And it was deteriorating. So I was having three Manhattans that turned into five every night. And then I would sit on the park bench with the four or five black dudes that I'd befriended that were in their mid-50s and 60s, bring 40s of old English and bring Colts and smoke weed and drink 40s and freestyle rap every once in a while with them. And it continued to escalate until I was out real late and I wasn't in service to myself or my program. Now, that sounds like a fun university experience for some outlook. For me, it felt like I was squandering literally every opportunity I'd been given. I was present, I was able to get through it, I was distanced from the work, my ethnography wasn't landing because I wasn't present and I was in pain all the time. And then I was uh, invited to do a talk for two very dear friends of mine um, who are part of a network that I'm involved in. And it was a big talk for them. So they're having all of their purchasers for this large company come to this beautiful marble showroom and one of my friends is a cellist so he was going to play and I was going to speak about poverty and make everybody understand what I'm working on Uh, instead I had been up drinking most of the night the night before I arrived and they immediately because I'm that guy were like we got you a bottle of Eagle Rare you should have a bourbon I was like I'd love a bourbon so I had one I had two I had three and then I did my talk and I aggressively essentially blamed everybody in the room for the situation that we're in I poked on all of their guilt, on all of their weakness, on all of their fears, on all of their insecurities, and I made most of them cry. 
until I was interrupted by my friend who was playing the cello, who gave me a huge hug and said, sit down. So I did. So I used my power for bad, knew it, uh, got in the car, went home, got a text message from the both of them and said, we need to have a talk, uh, to which I ignored. And then they called me the next day and said, we are going to come up to the peninsula and we're going to have dinner with you tomorrow night. We're really looking forward to it. And I was like, okay. There's a restaurant in Palo Alto called Bird Dog, uh, which is run by an incredible Southern chef. And I had a table and a bar seat there as well when I would entertain guests that weren't my pals at Moe's. And so I got there and had three cocktails before they even arrived. And as they arrived, they said almost instantly, these are two very demure, proper individuals, hyper-professional. They're like a brother and a sister to me, said, you're going to die. I said, literally, <laughs> or what are we talking about? And they're like, you're, you're going to die. You know it. We know it. Are you going to, or are you not going to, are you going to choose to stick around? Cause we'd really like you to. I was like, I'm not going to die. Like you are absolutely on a path. You know, you're on the path of destruction. You don't love yourself. You're doing this specifically to call yourself out. It ends in one of two ways. Which way do you want it to end? I was like, well, I don't want you to be disappointed and I don't want you to hurt classic victim stuff, right? And they're like, okay, well, you should consider not drinking anymore and then then give it some thought. I was like, I will absolutely consider that. And we had our dinner and it was super fucking uncomfortable. <laughs> I finished my cocktail. I didn't order another one. And the next day, uh, I was in a relationship at the time. Uh, the woman who I was dating was also drastically, increasingly worried about my behavior and not my behavior. Like I'm running in traffic or I'm threatening to take my life. Um, but my behavior was getting pro progressively self-destructive, uh, to self. So I was being harder and harder and harder on me. And when you break it down to that point, I'd attempted to take my life, uh, about a decade earlier. And that story was known to people who were close to me in the same pattern was, it was on its way. So there's, I also knew as you can probably tell intrinsically in this conversation that I was going to commit suicide. It would just get to a breaking point where I couldn't feel the pain anymore. That would happen. So I knew that was on, I was on the precipice of that. And I got up the next day and I walked to our local market um, and I was talking to her the whole time. And she's like, what are you going to buy? I was like, I'm going to buy a bottle of bourbon. She's like, what are you going to do with that bottle of bourbon? I said, I'm going to put a tick mark on it and put it on the counter. She said, are you going to open it? I was like, well, traditionally, I would need to come down off of this bender that I've been on. Otherwise, my body's going to go into shock. And my heart, I'm already medicated. <clears throat> I'm a little concerned, but let's see. And she was like, let's see is not a great answer. Maybe you should go see a doctor. I was like, I think we're going to do let's see. And so I decided to white knuckle sobriety for a hundred days privately, um, which I did no meetings, no exterior help, no counseling, no coaching. I started cooking really, really healthily for myself, playing basketball in the local park. I obviously had those nights that you have when you're coming out of addiction that were not ones I'd want to relive. But what started to happen for me fairly quickly within about a week or 10 days was 
I could feel myself being more present and enjoying things more. And flavors were coming back to me. And I wasn't quite as darkly depressed. And so I started to hold on to that as hard as I could. And I presented again at Stanford about three weeks after I was sober. I hadn't told anybody. And David Kelly interjected and asked me questions. He's not supposed to talk during these presentations or show bias. And at the end, he gave me about a dozen straight compliments about the work, about the way I was approaching it, about how important it was, and that I had cracked something that nobody was really thinking about. All the rest of the signs of my life started to show up. I was being offered things that I got offered the dinner at the Vatican during that time. And I just started saying yes to things that would normally make me really uncomfortable and doing them all. I bought a bike, started riding to work, into school, sorry. I got deeper into my ethnography. I threw myself into my research with the homeless and spent thousands of hours, over 100 ethnographic interviews with people in the mission in the Tenderloin that lasted two, three hours. That was my therapy, as I just saw myself another and listened. And then after 100 days, I announced it. Not to my friends and family via phone, on Instagram, because that's what you do. (laughs) I was like, I'm sober. I'm going to stay this way. And I've never seen a reaction to anything that I've ever done in my life of this level of positivity. Ever. Childhood friends from junior high (laughs) had some shit to say about it. Everybody had something to say. And all of it was overwhelmingly with the knowledge that they knew that this was a problem for me my whole life. It's a problem for a lot of people. I became my real self. I still have that trauma to deal with, but that's stage seven, right? Stage one was, I don't need this anymore. And I don't want to die. I don't actually want to die. I never wanted to. Um, I just wanted this pain to go away. And so I think I've since mentored literally 100 plus people who are trying to get sober Um, some go to AA some go to therapy some relapse some go into different drugs that's not for me that's for them Um, but to be able to say unequivocally my life started three years two months ago in earnest that's when it began the other stuff was practice it was great I really enjoyed it I wish I'd started maybe 13 years and two months ago I don't this is exactly how it was supposed to happen but that's what happened It's me again, Dr. G. You might be wondering, who is this guy, Mark Brand? And what is he up to now? Mark is tough love. While caring and forgiving, he is definitely no pushover. In fact, one of the tattoos that he refers to in his story is that of some ink on the knuckles of both his hands. One side reads love, and the other side reads hard. Love hard. That is Mark. He embodies what I like to call both a hug and a punch. 
Mark has now channeled his adversity into paying it forward to level up others who have suffered extreme hardships. He creates upward mobility for recovering addicts, incarcerated people, and often ignored street-entrenched civilians through his various restaurants and nonprofits, most notably a Better Life Foundation. Being hungry sucks, and Mark wholeheartedly believes that through food, we can elevate our communities and most importantly, those in need of a helping hand. It's crazy to think that we spent over six hours in conversation with Mark to get to this 20-minute episode. So don't miss out. Be sure to subscribe to our newsletter at superhumans.health. We've created an online community just for you. Follow us on Instagram and join in on the conversation. Look for our handle at superhumans.health. In our next episode, you'll hear from a NASA astronomer as she explores a constellation of emotions that inform our perceived realities and connections to each other. Apparently, there are people that, that come onto the Earth that, you know, as soon as their feet hit the ground, as soon as they are born, their minds are tuned to something. And to me, that is my experience of being human. And because of that, it's always been an experience of being a little bit apart, of being a little bit lonely. I think if, if I could have designed it for myself, I would have been much more like some kind of a baby monkey, just clinging to everyone pretty much all the time and looking at the stars. Be sure to subscribe and leave a review to help new listeners discover how story can be a form of medicine. Superhumans is made with love by a tribe of creative artists. Our senior producer and show co-creator is Pamela Rothenberg. Sound engineering and design is provided by Rob Spate. Pre-production audio engineering is provided by Jay Wujun Yao. Production assistance is provided by Tara Bika. Our original theme music is composed by Daniel Brunel. While the original music you hear before each story is composed by Radha Mehta. And a special thanks to our creative collaborators, Hatch. From Well Played, I'm Dr. G. And you are loved. <laughs>